Welcome to the ICE at Dartmouth podcast. This is Franklin Jacoby. In this episode, I'm going to speak with Dr. Graham Hubbs about money. Money is something that most of us probably spend a good deal of time thinking about. But we most likely are interested in how to get it, how fast we are losing it, who has how much of it, and how we can keep better hold of it. But let's take some time to consider a slightly different question about money. What is it? It turns out that this has proved to be a very difficult question to answer, in part because there appear to be two compelling answers. Which answer we endorse could lead us to make very different policy decisions and perhaps allow us to revisit the role we think that money plays in society. Graham is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Politics and Philosophy at the University of Idaho. He works on philosophy of economics and politics, including the question we are going to talk about in a moment. The history of philosophy plays an important role in his work, and I think this will give us the opportunity to better understand the various views different thinkers have taken toward money over the centuries and why it matters to us today. All right. Thank you, Graham. I'm not sure how you would like to start talking about money, but you mentioned that you're interested in ontological questions of money and history. And I wonder if it would be helpful to talk a little bit about just what what that general project is, because it might be kind of intuitive to think that, oh, we're interested in money here. We should be talking to economists. Maybe economists have something interesting to say, but philosophers have something interesting to say too. Uh, What do you think? Great. Yeah. Well, why don't we start with that? So um, one of the things to be careful about when speaking about economists or philosophers or, or anybody um, that, that falls under a disciplinary heading is to be sensitive to the subdivisions within the discipline. So uh, orthodox economists over the course of the uh, 20th century, I think it's fair to say, uh, developed models for economic activity that uh, tended to treat money as an invisible veil. Um, it didn't take the money as such as something especially important to include in economic models. The idea is that um, there is a desire to understand uh, the way that goods are exchanged. Um, and you'll see the word natural or real uh, applied to uh, the kind of economy that they want to model. And that money somehow is, is, um, is external to that and exterior and that it can be introduced into the model later, but it's, it only complicates things if you want to get um, an initial model off the ground uh, explaining how production and exchange takes place. So f- for that reason, for commitments to the way that they want their, wanted, have wanted their economic models to go, many orthodox economists in the, throughout the 20th century, and I think into the 21st century, just didn't think that thinking about money was important really at all. So sorry, so it was just to them uh, a, a good, same as any other traded good? Yeah, so maybe here we can, uh, uh, the, and this is already going to push into, um, um, to under, I think here that uh, a way to understand why there was this tendency and remains this tendency in economic modeling is to think a little bit about the ontological presuppositions that economists, uh, orthodox economists have had about money. <clears throat> I keep saying orthodox here to make clear that there is a stripe of heterodox economists um, uh, who were influenced by the work of Keynes in various ways, the most prominent and um, uh, popular of these today have labeled themselves um, MMTers, modern monetary theorists. Uh, um, and I will have more to say about them as, as we go along, who take the ontology of money and its role in um, not just in modeling economic activity, but in thinking about the role of money in government financing dead serious. And it's the starting point. 
So it's not that all economists have, have ignored this, and Keynes himself thought it was, was really, really important. But uh, the way that mainstream economics went along in the 20th century had this tendency to simply ignore it. So here's, here's why I think that is the case. The, um, the orthodox theory of money, and um, what I'm about to describe, you can find a version of it as far back as in Aristotle in uh, Politics one, uh, Book 1, chapters eight to 10, he lays out some of the ideas that would then um, show up again in Locke at the end of his chapter, chapter on property in the second treatise of government, and then be the explicit story that starts Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and a version of which you also see at the beginning of Marx's Capital. And it goes like this. Um, first, there was barter. And that's the way that humans um, exchanged goods with one another so that, that uh, a given human could have stuff that they didn't make or grow on their own. That's how, how uh, collective provisioning, we can call it, took place. I don't know how much Aristotle thought that all transfer of goods was bartering. I suspect he did not think anything of the sort. But Adam Smith surely does. By the time you get to the wealth of nations, uh, Adam Smith talks about us as having a, a natural propensity to truck and barter. That that's one of the things that makes us definitively human is that this is how we uh, satisfy our desires, given that none of us as an individual can satisfy their desires simply by growing stuff and, and making stuff in their basement or workshop or whatever. Um, so bartering is inconvenient in lots of ways. If I show up with a barrel of beer and you don't want beer and I want your shoes, then I can't get the shoes, right? So um, uh, the, what one has on hand at any given moment and whether it satisfies the desires of the person that one wants to trade with, um, it uh, creates problems. And the problem would be ameliorated if only there was something that all of us agreed we would always accept in exchange for whatever it was we were selling. Uh, aha! Precious metal, that's awesome. Everybody wants some precious metal. So um, we will all start not only using that in exchange, but we'll also start using the concept of the quantity of a given bit of precious metal in order to denominate the prices for everything else in the market. So the physical stuff will serve as a universal medium of exchange. And the, the concept that we attach to um, weighing the stuff out will be the concept that we use when saying that this barrel of beer over here is worth, I don't know, an ounce of gold. I better be a pretty good beer. And that these shoes over here are worth a lot less or something like that. So the way that that story just went, you've got <clears throat> trade as a mode and barter in particular as a mode of collective provisioning. You've got inconveniences that happen. That creates the problem space. The solution is to find one thing that everyone will accept that you can then in turn use to denominate exchange rates in. And bam, money comes into existence uh, uh, that way. So now note that if you're thinking that way, there's nothing especially um, important about gold or silver being the thing that's used as the universal medium of exchange and the, the thing to denote the prices. You could just as easily use cows or beer or nails or anything else that, that you could exchange. Um, gold and silver, the, 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 the old fashioned story goes, um, proved to be quite useful because they don't perish. Like you wouldn't want to use maybe grain as a universal medium of exchange because if you stick in your basement, it's going to rot. Locke explicitly is thinking about um, uh, things along these ways. So uh, money is said to store value better because it doesn't rot in your basement. Um, it's also uh, precious metal in particular is easily divisible. So if we decide that you, you know a quarter of this little chunk of gold is what's uh, an appropriate thing to pay for the shoes, I can cut it up. 
I, you know, it's hard to imagine how people really think through the mechanics of this having gone in this in these mythical barter markets. Like, not only do you have your scales out there, but you everyone's a little metallurgist too that they can cut these things up and 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 uh, get them separated for exchange on the spot. But that's the way the story goes. So, <clears throat> on that way of thinking about things, money itself was originally a commodity. Um, it could have been any other commodity. It's a matter of the natural properties of precious metals that make it better suited to perform the universal medium of exchange and unit of account functions. But cows or beer would have done just fine. And we do find historical examples on the frontier of the United States, for example, um, in the late 18th century, maybe early 19th century. Uh, whiskey has a lot of these properties too, right? Whiskey stores really well. Whiskey is easily divisible. Even if you don't like drinking whiskey, you probably know somebody who likes drinking whiskey so that if you've got some on your hands, you can always offload it for whatever it is that you want. So, um, and, and it's way more divisible than gold, right? You pour an ounce out and put it out. So uh, um, that's the orthodox account. And you could see that if you're thinking about it that way, um, money, the key idea here is that money is just another, uh, or originally was just another commodity. And that the value that money has derives from the function that it has in the markets. Uh, the, the Austrian economists um, had a word for this that I like, which is, the, um, they call this the catalytic, catalactic theory of money. Um, I, I like the, the term because um, it's more common to call this theory the commodity theory of money, but I don't think that it's a necessary condition on the theory that you think that money is a commodity, because I don't think anybody looks at their bank accounts today or looks at what's in their wallet and says that's a commodity. Rather, the value and function derived from the market activity and catalactic is just the Greek for, for exchange. So I think that that's a nice word to, to get a hold on on what the, um, what the idea is meant to convey. It doesn't have or doesn't need to have any particular utility beyond its utility as a, as, as, as a unit of trade, unlike, say, grain or whiskey or any of those other sorts of things. Well, so I think that um, that is I think Marx is particularly good on this because I think that that um, my understanding of Marx, and I should say at the beginning that I am not a Marx scholar, and there are uh, folks who read Marx just as a commodity theorist as presenting exactly the same idea as Adam Smith. There are vowed um, uh, Marxists to say that's exactly the wrong way to read Marx, that he is not performing a commodity uh, theory of money. Rather, he explains how the commodity um, account of money explains the money form as such, but that Marx has got a different account of money. I don't want to wade in, into, into any of those, those sorts of waters. Um, I invoke Marx here, though, to say that I do think that you can find in him at the beginning of Capital the idea that when um, some physical thing has properly taken on the money form, what it is doing at that time is exactly what you are, are describing, which is all of its use value is in its exchange value. Most everything else has a use value and an exchange value. We exchange it in the market and then we take home and we enjoy it and that that's its use value. That money is this, when, when something like gold fully achieves the money form, it's like abandoned all use value besides its, its market value. Um, but in, in, in any case, even on that story, you see the, the account of value being um, uh, located within market activities. So the alternative view, which uh, goes under the name um, the, the, the genus of the alternative view is called cartelism. Um, the carta root just meaning token or ticket. And that meaning to signal the idea that the value of money uh, never has had and simply does not have anything to do with its 
materiality um, as such, but rather it's a representation of debt. And that's all it is. And anything can be used to represent debt. Um, in the specific version that is relevant to uh, contemporary uh, political discussion and the version that I think has the most traction even out, outside of that and just thinking about theories of money is called the state theory of money. And it goes like this. Um, in large complex states, states have a need to manage the economic activity of their members and citizens. Um, and that requires some kind of bookkeeping device to keep track of taxes um, to keep track of, if we're talking about Mesopotamia, what's paid to the temple, um, to keep track of fines. Um, so if, you know, you accidentally kill my cow um, and you don't have a cow to give me back in exchange and we want to go on living civilly, we need to find something equivalent that you can give me for the cow that you've accidentally killed. So there's a legal context in which these questions of commensurability need to be resolved. <clears throat> that uh, in order to decide uh, and, uh, and settle those kinds of matters that the state just declares by fiat, this chunk of metal right here is going to be equivalent to this much grain and this many cows and this much beer. And now we can, we've got a way of saying what uh, an equitable payment is for things like taxes and fines. Equitability here being defined by the state authorities, right? There's not um, the, the, the notion of the, um, of the equivalence between these otherwise incommensurable things does not emerge through market activity, but it's simply set by the kings and priests and the temple or whatever. And that that's what, what money is um, first and foremost is an administrative tool. Um, <clears throat> there are uh, those who, who, there were some staunch proponents of this view who um, go on to assert that uh, that kind of activity is precisely what enabled markets to be able to use to come up with a system of uniform pricing that instead and so in a certain sense instead of money depending upon markets for their existence for its existence the old the orthodox story well there's markets there's bartering it's inconvenient and the money crystallizes out in order to make trade a lot easier exactly the opposite way around the heterodox theorist says First, we've got this administrative tool, and it's great because it's allowing the temple priests to say how many pigs are worth how much beer. Oh, great. We could use this in the market to uh, facilitate uh, what used to be barter exchanges, but that you can never ex expect the universality of the unit of account to emerge out of the, the multiplicity of dynamic um, uh, market exchanges that it would almost have to have been established by fiat in some way um, uh, in order to be able to get um, again, the universality of the unit of account to, to work in the first place. So that's, that's the, uh, the cardalist view, um, the version that I gave where the, um, the value of the debt is backed by the, the authority of the state is called the state theory. Um, it was first introduced by George Friedrich, Friedrich Knapp in 1905. Um, it was uh, a version of it was explicated by um, uh, Mitchell Ennis, I think his first name is Alfred in the 19 teens. And then Keynes tells a version of this story in his theory of money in 1930. And so all the, the contemporary um, uh, uh, post Keynesians, um, they're really sort of the original Keynesians, including the modern monetary theorists um, adhere to this view. The, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the state, the, the view that the, the, the state-, state view, Right, yeah, exactly. It seems like for both views, they're invoking the origins of money to try to explain current 
monetary ontology, I guess, what money is today. Do you have to do that or why might you want to do that? Great. That's a, a wonderful question and something that I'm thinking about right now. So <clears throat> you can, um, the accounts that I just gave and the way that I gave them, I think are the way they tend to be presented. You can call them genetic accounts. You can call them etiologies. I think I use, uh, in my work, I've used both terms. Um, but the idea I think here is this, that what is um, perplexing about money is if you stare at a coin or if you stare at a value, how it has the power that it does to do what it does for you as an individual and in society. And you can't, you turn it over and you look for its physical properties that allow it to do what it does and you don't find any physical properties. Um, these are the kinds of remarks that frequently begin analyses of, of the power of money. So the explanatory problem is how does this thing in my hand that seems to have no particularly property all of this kind of economic activity. And so what you want then is a, um, uh, an account of the, a causal account that explains how the thing in question comes to have the properties that it does. And the typical way to run that account um, is to think about a time when there was no money, think about all the inconveniences that arose, and then tell a story that gets you from the inconveniences to the creation of money to solve the problem of those inconveniences. And then that explains how the thing in question has the properties that it has. But I think it's an open question. Um, and it's one that modern monetary theorists often get from contemporary critics, which is why would you think that that kind of story is relevant for understanding what we can do with money today? So, uh, you know, analogies that you could you could use here, if you think that that money is a tool of some sort, well, engines and cars are tools, but when I go to the mechanic to get my car fixed, I don't want a treatise on how the engine developed in the late 19th and early 20th century. I want the person to get in and make it work so that my car works. And similarly, if you wanted to master chess, you don't need to know the history of the games and early proto chess games. Um, instead of having a tool, you've got something that's defined by constitutive rules. You want to understand what the constitutive rules are so that you can master the game. So why wouldn't money be that way? Um, so one of the thoughts that I've got here is that um, the history of money doesn't, for answering that question about the policy implications of the nature of money, <clears throat> the history itself it isn't immediately relevant. I think I think that's um, the 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 complaint. Why are we doing history here? Has got some merit to it, um, uh, but that merit is limited because I think that um, uh, what the history is really doing is allowing us to see a different order of explanation for the functions of money, um, a different order of 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 of, of explaining which function of money is prior and how the other functions of money derive from the prior function. And that it is a part of what has come in tow with the orthodox theory of money being a commodity is presuppositions about the correct explanatory order. So let's go back to thinking about what I was talking about at the beginning about how orthodox economics in the 20th century just left money out of their models altogether because they thought that it's just a commodity like any other commodity and so it doesn't you know adding it in it only complicates things well moreover if you think that um, economic activity is itself prior to the formation of government the formation of law and governmental activity if you think that 
making stuff and consuming stuff is the, what we basically do as humans and that we create government and laws in order to do that better, then you're gonna think that money has a role in thinking through human behavior and explaining human behavior and improving human behavior prior to ever getting to figuring out what the point of government and law and how it works is. is. And I think Locke is excellent on this because when you read the second treatise of government, <clears throat> at the end of book uh, chapter five, money is introduced. Government is not introduced for a few chapters. So if you read that as, as, as unfolding uh, a temporal order that is mimicking a logical order and vice versa, then you get an account where economic activity, property rights famously, but also the creation of money, all of that stuff is prior to government and all government is supposed to do is manage things so that we best protect our property rights, which here will include um, the management and use of money. On the other hand, if you think of it from the Cardalist view, that's just nonsense, right? Or, and specifically the state theorist view. Um, so the, the, the history then seeing that there is a possibility that money and the unit of account function could have come before even markets existed opens us up to the possibility of thinking about things in such a way that we're not, we don't have like market blinders on when we're thinking about money creation and, and money use. And I think one way of thinking about the, I keep mentioning these folks who are modern monetary theorists. One of the things that they advocate for is a jobs guarantee program where um, we reach full employment by everyone in the country who wants a job getting a job. And if the private market doesn't supply the jobs then the government supplies the jobs. So you might have uh, um, worries about that uh, efficiency, what happens when government bureaucracies create jobs, but a, a more basic worry is how are we going to pay for that? Now, if you say, how are we going to pay for that? That presumes that the government has to go out and get money to pay for it the way that you or I, if we wanted to start a jobs guarantee program would have to go out and get money to finance hiring all the people we, will, we have to hire. But you and I don't have the authority of the state simply to create money as we see fit. Um, the United States government does. There are no financial constraints on the amount of money that it can create in order to uh, employ people. If you are thinking from the Lockean orthodox view, that's going to hurt your head. It's not that something about that is going to seem wrong because you think of economic activity, including the use of money, which we could just as easily do away with in our models. Because uh, all of that is 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 um, conceptually prior to introducing thoughts about governmental policy whatsoever. Um, going through the history of money, seeing this alternative account can make us think maybe that way of proceeding um, is wrongheaded. Maybe we should take seriously the idea that um, the value of money is, is bound up entirely in the authority of the state. Um, not entirely, but it's, that's too strong. That's too strong. That it ultimately grounds out in the authority of the state. Um, and that opens up a space of possibilities that would not be open if the orthodox account was correct. I see. Does is okay. So you, one might think that to arbitrate between these two things, you could just examine whether states can in fact create money, and if they could, then that would suggest that money is not principally a market commodity. Is that a good way of going about this? Yeah. So that's certainly one way of going about this. Um, another way is to actually look at the history. So I think one thing that confuses. The debate somewhat and that the um, uh, proponents of, of cartelism and the state theory um, uh, uh, will do this is they will point to the work of historians on ancient Mesopotamia 
and the work on ancient Mesopotamia suggests that the Cartilus theory um, certainly isn't wrong and it's probably right. There, whether there was bartering going on when the, the um, Mesopotamian um, uh, society was formed and how the economy was managed, I, I, I don't know the details of that. It seems like one can imagine there was small scale bartering, but there were nothing like the full scale markets. We have no evidence that there were large scale markets with prices denominated in one um, universally desired commodity. All of that story seems to be false. And uh, David Graeber in his book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years, does a really good job of, of showing how you might have been tipped off to the possibility that there was something not true about this, um, given that any economics textbook that bothers to talk a little bit about the ontology of money, and usually this happens in the course of a paragraph or two, will tell the, a version of the orthodox story by saying, imagine a community in which, and he shows four or five examples where the first word is imagine. And he's like, there's a reason that this has to be imagined because it's imaginary. So that's one way that you could go is you could actually look at the actual history. But as your, your suggestion was, well, let me take seriously the idea that maybe history is a, is a bit of a red herring in thinking through the relevance of these matters to contemporary policy. Um, can we just look at how governments are functioning today and see whether the Carlist account is, is, is right or not. <clears throat> and again, it seems like the evidence here is that um, uh, it, it is. After the, uh, here, here's a, an example that um, Stephanie Kelton, who recently wrote uh, The Deficit Myth, likes to roll out, and uh, um, who's a, she's a modern monetary theorist. Uh, uh, Randy Ray likes this example too. I, I think it was um, um, Bernanke who was in charge of the Fed at the, um, in 2008 when the financial crisis happened. Um, and um, if it wasn't, it was who was ever in charge of the Fed, but I'm almost sure that it was Bernanke. And he was on 60 Minutes one night explaining how the quantitative easing program work, worked and um, was asked how the government got the money to buy back all the bonds that were on the market, because it's just like, I don't know, billions of dollars or something like that had been put into the Fed to buy back all these bonds. And Bernanke, without missing a beat, said, um, oh, well, we, we hit the, the keyboard on the computer. Um, that's, that's how the money was created. That's how money is always created. And um, um, that's, a, that's a favorite moment for um, folks who put who advance the Cartelist line of thought to say, see, look, the central bankers know exactly what's going on here. They know that they don't, they're not metaphysically certainly subject to any constraints about uh, the existence of some underlying commodity um, uh, determining the amount of money that they can create. The only thing that they're restricted by is law. Um, so another important point to put, to put here as we move away from, and these issues I do think get messy because there's the sort of basic ontological issues, but they bleed into legal issues. This, the ontological story that I've been telling, uh, money always everywhere has been something that the state, if it realized it, had the power to create and use where it's a, um, the value ultimately rests in the authority of the state to collect it back, collect it back in taxes. But as a legal matter, states forever, and certainly at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, didn't uh, codify or exercise this power in that way. Instead, they pegged, the, they pegged the value of their paper currency to the gold. The world was on the gold standard until Bretton Woods took Britain off, and then the US was off 40 years later. So all the things that I'm saying that, that money is and that money can do um, were not legally codified by states who were on the gold standard. And to this day, they remain not legally codified on any state that main changes, uh, excuse me, that maintains 
a um, exchangeability um, uh, that maintains laws of exchangeability whereby their currency needs to be exchangeable for um, a quantity of, say, US dollars. Because then that state is obliged to have the US dollars on hand to exchange for whatever their particular currency is. What's special about our particular moment in history right now is that several states, the United States, Great Britain, Japan, Canada, Australia, um, the, have no fixed exchangeability for their currencies at all. Uh, the, the value internationally is determined, is floats and is determined by the exchangeability for other uh, currencies in the international market. But there's no precious metal underlying um, the, the exchangeability of the, of the, of the, um, of the currency. Um, and, and nor is there a, a commitment to pay in some, in some other currency. So um, yeah, you could look around and say since 1971, the United States has been off the gold standard and um, there are several states that are off the gold standard and their economies are doing fine um, or maybe doing fine is a little bit too strong, but they have not collapsed, right? There were, there were serious stresses that are put on, um, I think by um, uh, gross inequality, but the, uh, uh, the, the failure to peg the currency to a, a metallic standard is not what is creating the inequality here. The inequality is created by, um, um, by other things. The currency is going on to function um, effectively and not collapsing, even though, you know, since 1971, there's been no um, uh, gold standard to, to exchange your, your, your dollars for. Sorry, that was a long-winded way of saying, uh, trying to give you some details to say exactly, if you look at how things work right now, um, you will come to the conclusion that there is something to the cartelist view. And maybe this is more of an issue of, of the value of the currency, but a state can't print print money indefinitely without consequences to that. Would, would, wouldn't that then speak against that view? Yeah, so um, this is a, um, this is a common charge. This is another common charge that's brought up against uh, those who espouse the, the view that I'm articulating here. Um, <clears throat> there are some quick responses. To, I, I think that the answer is, is it's complicated. And one of the places that I find as a philosopher coming into reading this literature um, a little confounding and that I hope that my work will help clarify over time is um, getting clear on what are conceptual questions and what are empirical questions. I think that the, the, the claim, if you print enough money and it's not printed, right? If you create enough money and debit enough accounts that you run a jobs guarantee program where everyone uh, gets a job, um, it will inevitably create inflation. Um, that sounds to me an awful lot like an empirical claim that we can make predictions about based on prior experience. Um, now, basing our predictions on prior experience is a delicate um, affair, in particular when we're talking about um, uh, large injections of currency and their correlation with hyperinflation. The examples that we have of this in, um, in, in the, the European and American context uh, come primarily from post-World War II, post-World War I, prior to World War II, Weimar Germany is one that people roll out all the time. Um, there's a couple of things going on in that context. One, um, the, the uh, Germans were in massive debt to the allies and had to repay their war debts. 
Two, they had to repay their war debts, I think in francs, but whatever they were, they were not being repaid in marks. So they had to go out and go get another currency. And moreover, the world was on the, still on the gold standard. So from the German perspective in the 1920s, the franc exactly is like the dollar is to you or me. It's something that it has to go out and do something to get in order to pay off this debt. It's when you're, when you're not subject to those sorts of constraints that these um, ideas uh, uh, that follow from cartelism um, have a space to actually be explored. So um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a cautionary um, uh, warning against looking at the history of the early part of the 20th century and saying, see, hyperinflation would happen. The uh, conditions that those monies or those currencies rather were, were subject to are not the kinds of, of conditions that we're talking about when we're talking about um, what uh, the uh, uh, post-Keynesians and, and modern monetary theorists call sovereign currencies. A sovereign currency is one where by law, the government has decided not to peg it to a precious metal and not to peg it to some other, other uh, currency. Um, okay, so that's, that's one thought. But another thought that I think is important for thinking through this is um, when you, if you accept that the cartelist account of money creation is correct as a possibility for any state, and that tells us something about the underlying ontology of money, and is correct as a possibility, is as a legal possibility in any state that has decided to make its currency sovereign in the way that I've just described. A question that should immediately pop into mind is, well, then what's the point of taxes, right? Why, why does the government bother administering taxes if it doesn't need to go out and collect money to provision itself the way that you and I do? What's the, what's the point? Um, the, um, uh, the, was it the Fed chair in the late 40s? There, this, this, is, um, uh, uh, this is an issue that, that struck people in the middle of the 20th century as soon as they saw Britain go off the gold standard and I guess could smell that the United States wasn't going to be too long before it was going to have to go off the gold standard too. Um, and I'm, I'm forgetting, I want to say that the guy's name is, is, is Beardsley Rummel, or I think is, is his name. Um, I, I could have the name totally wrong, so you might want to edit that out or, or go check up on it. Um, but there was the head of the Fed in the in the fifties was like, yeah, there's the uh, the point of taxes is not for the government to acquire resources to to finance its activities. Um, it can administer taxes because it wants to encourage certain behaviors and discourage others, right? So if um, uh, you know, think about sin taxes, right? Like if you think that it's problematic to make cigarettes illegal because that's going to create a, uh, an illegal market that comes with all of the like brutal consequences to people's lives that happens when markets are illegal and unregulated and so forth. You might think that it's good to have cigarettes be legal still, but you might think, well, we still don't really don't want people smoking them though. And so one way to discourage them is to just arbitrarily levy a tax on it to make it less attractive for you to be uh, pulling first $3, now $5, now $7, now $9 out of your pocket. So there, there are still, um, behavioral modification um, reasons for, for taxing people. If you think that uh, wealth, um, intergenerational wealth inequality is a problem for a democratic polis, you might impose um, uh, estate taxes um, and, and uh, inheritance taxes so that wealth can't accumulate in that way. But notice both of those have to do with thinking about different kinds of sociological effects. On the one hand of smoking cigarettes, on the other hand of having wealth, wealth inequality, 
in neither case is the is the consideration how is the government going to get the money to pay for this stuff another thing you might use taxes for <clears throat> is if there is too much money in the economy and you're seeing inflationary things starting to happen if you've reached full employment and prices are starting to go up um, as a function of having hit that mark and having too much money in the economy you might think well you know one way that we could could tamp down inflation is just to pull the money back out of the economy well, there's a real easy way to pull the money back out of the economy, levy a tax and then and, and pull it back out. When you think about the function of taxes in this way, um, and this, it is a sort of uh, 180 standing the concept of taxing on its head, instead of thinking about the function of taxing as collecting so as to gain a resource that you're then going to use later, which is the way that all of us in our daily lives relate to money, what the government is really doing when it taxes is is taking out and destroying, burning, annihilating the money. The money has real uh, functional um, existence in the economy so long as it is not, quote unquote, in the hands of the government. Uh, but the government's hands have always got all the money that it could possibly want simply by doing what Bernanke said and going over and hitting the keyboard over at the Fed. So what, what is really going on is that taxes are coming out and being burned. There's been some recent scholarship, um, I, I um, uh, apologize again for blanking on some names here, by a historian of colonial Virginia who, noted, who has noted that in colonial Virginia, um, the, there was a time when the, the colonial government did exactly what I just described with the paper money that it had issued. That is, when it was collected at tax time, it was simply burned because um, it doesn't have the same value in the hands of the government that can create it as it does in the hands of those of us who cannot uh, create it in our, I guess they didn't have basements back then, cellars. Um, they, they literally burned the, the money as tax receipts when it, when it came back in, um, which should tell you that they recognized that it, it, it was a mistake to think of it as, as holding, holding power. I think that that confusion about thinking about the government needing to provision itself in the way that we do, um, uh, one of the historical places that it comes from is the need of governments to pay for mercenaries to fight in their war when they can no longer depend upon uh, citizens, either because they are around or they're sufficiently motivated to go fight in wars. So you'll see this in, in, in Greece um, shortly after the invention of coinage. So the use of precious metal in, uh, in order to establish um, a, a unit of account to denominate taxes as in Mesopotamia, goes way, 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 way back, um, you know, at least 3,000 years. <clears throat> Coin, the idea of actually taking a bit of metal and then stamping something on it, either to denominate its weight or the, um, you know, the, the, the kingdom or government that it's come from, is a, uh, something that uh, came about in ancient Lydia, I think about 600 BC. It's by um, uh, standards of civilization, a pretty new invention. Um, and um, the Greeks put it to use uh, at the time of uh, shortly after Plato and Aristotle. Money would have been a pretty new technology to their uh, to their to their ancestors. Um, in in no small part, in order to finance the absolutely endless warfare that was going on back then, um, to hire people to go out and and fight in the wars. And then you see some of the um, the considerations that would drive one to thinking about the money on the commodity theory coming to bear. Um, the governments of, say, Athens or, or um, you know, whatever city state you want could not 
rely upon the power of taxation that the cartelist has, that the cartelist puts front and foremost in their account of money in order to incentivize people who were not subject to those taxes to go out and fight in their wars, they had to give those folks something else. And cows are really inconvenient to take back hundreds of miles after you're done fighting. Um, but precious metal is not if it's already serving a, 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 an exchange function. Um, and it was. Uh, in international markets, precious metal has, has um, as far as I know, always played some role in allowing merchants to be able to, um, to trade things internationally. Uh, I, find, I continue to find that fascinating, that that still to me seems like a, a mystery that maybe someone knows the answer to, but why the merchants prior to the existence of coinage and in um, bona fide interstate or international settings were using precious metal in order to, um, in order to, to move commodities around. But that, that's the kind of thing that, that the historical point that um, um, you know, somebody who wants to hold out for a version of the commodity theory uh, uh, might point to to think about the role of actual commodities and precious metals in particular in allowing money to execute some of its some of the money functions that that have uh, existed for for millennia wow where do you sit on this on this issue do you find yourself compelled by the uh the sort of state i'm calling the state view of money but the the idea that it's not a the state doesn't have to go get money the way ordinary citizens do that seems to me um, just descriptively correct, right? Uh, that it, um, uh, the, the, your thought earlier that, well, can't we just look at what states are doing now and decide whether the cartelist or the commodity theorist is, is, is right? Um, it seems to me like one way of answering this question and the answer that I gave earlier seems like the answer to give. Yes, that's in fact what, what happens. Um, I would, um, then go on to say what I said earlier about the, the real worry being um, uh, what kinds of effects on inflation are there if a state is to harness this power totally the way that um, uh, those who have seized upon modern monetary theory as a, a grounds for policy would advocate doing through, the, uh, through a jobs guarantee. And I, I, uh, I don't think I have mentioned this yet in, in this discussion. Um, this all was um, very in the news um, in starting in January of 2019 uh, when uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that modern monetary theory definitely needs to be part of the picture when thinking about funding initiatives like a Green New Deal. Um, there was an, an explosion of articles in the course of the next few months about what MMT is, usually saying that it is either um, crazy, um, like some make-believe economics, or extremely dangerous, or all these things at one time. So the, um, the, 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 the titles of some of these articles gave the sense of, 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 of panic that um, there's this very, very dangerous, insane, but somehow getting a grip theory that is caught AOC and the squad and it's like beginning to make its way through the progressive house and it's, you know, we can't let it, it, it work its way up to actual um, uh, policymaking in Congress and then for the president to sign anything. Um, I think that, that those debates really would be assisted by, again, clearing out what are the conceptual issues and what are the empirical issues. Conceptually, I think the cartelist has got it right. That's what money is. Empirically, does that, man, does that mean that um, funding a jobs guarantee, uh, the way that 
uh, the progressive left is advocating for using MMT is going to create runaway inflation. Um, uh, th that, that is, uh, that's where I will happily acknowledge I'm a philosopher and not an economist and ask economists who, um, in particular economists who, who you know, do their history well um, and can look at prior uh, examples of hyperinflation and sort out the details of what the actual root causes to these, to these things were um, for them to explain um, um, what's going on. But stepping back from, from making any proclamations about what we should do with this knowledge, uh, I think is an ontological fact um, yeah, the Cardinalist has got it right. I see. And I mean, this is, though, is actually quite helpful for economists, because if the Cardinalists do have it right, that means that, that there then is at least a, uh, the potential for something like the Green New Deal to be successful. Whereas if you have the commodity, commodity view, then that just wouldn't be able to get off the ground. You would, the, the government would be subject to if, 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 the, if the underlying thought of the commodity view doesn't, again, you don't have to think that money is itself a commodity. And I think you were right to say, hang on, it seems weird to say that money is a commodity precisely because it doesn't seem to have a use value outside of its exchange value. Correct. So the, um, uh, but the underlying thought is that money's value is determined by its market function. Its money's value derives from its market function. I think those two things can come apart. How the amount of value that a given bit of money has is determined as opposed to what its fundamental source of value is. But if all that stems from the market and moreover, the government has to, the key thought is like, does the government have to go out and get it or does the government just make it? If it has to go out and get it, then it's subject to the same sorts of worries about budgeting that you or I or any corporation would have. If it doesn't have to go out and get it, then it just opens up a new range of possibilities. It opens up a new range of considerations as to what can be done with that power and how to limit that power so that it's not harmful. Um, <clears throat> but I think that one of the things that would that would be, not would be, but will be really hard for um, accepting what seems to be the truth of cartelism is the bit that we were at just a little bit ago about what's the function of taxes. Um, Politicians wield a lot of power through what they say about taxes, whether they're going to lower them, whether they're going to cut them, whether they're, if they're going to raise them, who they're going to raise them on, what they're going to raise them for. Um, and then just using the, the, we haven't had this since for several years now, but um, the use of the debt ceiling as a way to bring um, Congress and, and the, not just Congress, but the functioning of the government to uh, a halt. I mean, that's just a that's a make-believe constraint that um, uh, is is uh, exploited. Um, I would say somewhat cynically by folks in Congress to advance various agendas. But it's it's entirely make-believe. There is no debt constraint on the government of the sort that private households and corporations have. Taxes do not work the way that politicians say that they work. They do not perform the functions that they say that they do. So. Um, in order to make um, a Green New Deal a reality, fully using the insights of, of cartelism would also require a complete rethinking of the nature and function of taxes on the part of both politicians and the folks who elect politicians in the power. And that to me seems like much more of an uphill climb, in part because we've been told forever that taught forever to think about the government as a very special corporation that needs money from us in order to do what it does. And our experience with money doesn't jibe with the cartelist claim that um, ultimately the source of the value of money derives from governmental authority and its ability to 
uh, demand payment of taxes, fines, and fees in this currency. Day to day, I use my money to go buy stuff at the grocery store, to buy stuff online. I'm not thinking about the government at all. I'm going to another private person and giving money in order to get some goods. Most of our monetary interactions are like that. So, and that makes it seem like the interactions with the government, paying a parking fine, <clears throat> paying a court fee, or paying your taxes are the exceptional ones. That couldn't, the, the fact that it happens so infrequently relative to buying a cup of coffee, buying a beer, paying for some gasoline, buying a book, um, the, the relative frequency of those two different activities could certainly lead you to think, well, the thing that I do more often must be like what money really is. And so what it really is is something that allows me to achieve these, these market functions. So uh, um, it, it'll take more than a little theory. Uh, it'll, it'll take a lot of theory set a lot of times to break free of what just would seem to be common sense when we think about our daily uh, interactions with money. Wow, that's so interesting. So in some ways there's a, I don't know, there's a, a bit of a conceptual mistake in thinking that, I guess, returning to this idea of what a government is, but in thinking that a government is just like a corporation, which is just like an individual who deals with with debt and income and all these things in the same way that individuals do. And that's actually not really what's going on. That's really interesting. I think that it, it uh, it's a longstanding philosophical topic and project to explain what makes government different in the way that you just described. Um, and I think that the, 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 the story to be told there is found in philosophy of law. What is the nature of law and where does legal authority derive from? I think whatever answer you give to that question is going to be the answer that you then in turn give to the question, how does money have the value that it does? What is its ultimate source? Um, if you think that um, I don't know if this is a, a cynical view. Um, I think it gets called realist. But if you think that what it ultimately derives from is the ability uh, of the government to get away with exercising um, violence, right, with, the, with, with the, its power to coerce without having anything to be able to coerce it, um, and that that is the um, because what uh, thinking along that way, uh, thinking about the, the the power of government that way. Um, you get the view that money gets its value ultimately from the ability of the government to coerce you to pay it back in taxes, fees, and fines, and refusing to accept any anything back. If that story is right, then you know the mob boss might have similar coercive power to issue um, uh, uh, some kind of token and then demand it back as for loyalty. So there's nothing special about government. Then what is special is having the power to get people to uh, accept the tokens that, that you issue as representations of debt, and then um, have them have some sort of value. So there's two, let me, there's a couple, there's a quote here that I think is interesting in this context and an example that, that will help clarify the view. The quote comes from uh, the um, uh, Marxist economist, economist Minsky, who has said about money, um, uh, there is no trick to making money. The only trick is getting it accepted. You and I could could issue some IOUs and start handing them out, but they won't circulate and do the things that money do if no one thinks that you or I are going to be any good. Uh, there's any there's any good in, in bringing them back to us for the for the thing in question. So that that kind of diffuses the metaphysical specialness of money to think that like actually anybody can make can make some money, but it doesn't go on being money for very long if uh, there's not some reason for the holder to think that there's um, um, some value in holding it and. The 
power of the state to demand it back in taxes gives you that power. The other story to tell in this context is a story um, uh, from Warren Mosler, who is one of the like, who's thinking about these matters um, led, uh, I think, Kelton and Ray to begin developing um, what they would go on to call modern monetary theory in the late in the late 1990s. And Mosler's story goes like this. In order to demonstrate the reality of money, he gave his kids um, business cards for doing their chores. And um, so you might think, why would a kid, like what value does a business card have? And it's a business card. Like you couldn't, the kids couldn't go take it to the store and, and go buy, buy candy with it or, or, or whatever. Um, but part of the condition of them meeting their obligations to the family was that at the end of every month, they would have to return the business cards to, to Mosler in order to indicate that they had done a sufficient number of chores, right? This gives the kids some freedom in what chores they do. Mosler sets up whatever the, you know, the rate for paying out the business cards is. But his, his point is that you know, he's got parental authority there. He's got some stuff he needs to get done, chores. He's going to give the kids some say in how they go about doing it. And the way that he's going to make sure that it gets done is that the enforcement mechanism is simply, you got to bring me back these business cards at the end of the, of the day. Um, the business cards do not have commodity value, but they're functioning like the cartelist says money functions in that system. And what I think is nice about the Mosler example is that um, it, it reveals that uh, an underlying thought here, it, it, it's hard for me to think about cartelism as not requiring the executive at least to function in a somewhat paternalistic manner over its populace. The legislature can be genuinely democratic and you can have a genuine republic, um, but to get the whole thing to work, it is hard for me to imagine there not being some system of um, punishment for not playing the game, right? I don't know what happened to his kids if they didn't give the cards in, maybe they got grounded or something like that, right? But there's authority there that, that's being exercised. So how you would take all of this thought over into an anarchist context is beyond me. I'm not entirely sure um, what it would look like um, if you were to advocate for a form of anarchism, whether how you would um, implement a system of, uh, of, of, debt tokens on a large scale in order to organize the activity of the collective to which you belonged. Um, and that's why uh, the uh, cartelism, the, the most prominent version of cartelism unashamedly calls itself the state theory of money. The state has to exist with a certain degree of authority for the whole uh, scheme or whatever system, if you will, uh, to work, remove that and, um, and uh, you have to come up with a, a different way of doing things. It brings to, I mean, that brings to mind the, that um, bit of text on our currency that says uh, this note is legal tender for all debts, public yep. and private. It's, a, it's like a command. This is, you have to accept yes. uh, this money, even private uh, transactions require that. So one question I would, maybe I have a comment and a question. So it sounds like then sure. that money if, uh, is actually not that fundamental a part of I don't know, say the human experience as you might expect if you were a commodity theorist, because it's actually something that is logically secondary to, I don't know, law or justice or communal living, government managed living. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know about primacy and in, in, in secondary, but it is a, um, it's a, it's a manifestation of our 
lived existence as, I'll use Aristotle's phrase here, as political animals. Um, it is not a part of our mere animal being. So I think Aristotle's, uh, the, the things that he says at the beginning of the politics are, are useful here. Aristotle insists that, that humans are, are political animals by nature, and he means a bunch of different things by that. Uh, but one of the things that he means, he articulates through this thesis that the polis, the city-state, the political unit, is prior to the individual, which is not to say that like you and I can't go backpacking in Wyoming and be for a moment free of the law and do like if the law in Wyoming is not to run around naked and we run around naked on the mountain of Wyoming, no one's going to catch us and do anything to us, right? So you might think like, aha, you know, I can be an individual free of the law there. Um, I think Aristotle is saying that what it is to be a live a fully human existence is to live socially with one another, and that what our sociability requires of us is that we come up with norms of justice and apply them so that we can coordinate our activity towards living a good life and not merely living um, the the animalistic life of a cow or or a pig. Um, <clears throat> money. Um, seems to be a part of that process. Money seems to be an expression of justice, an exercise of justice, as I was saying earlier, an exercise of law. So it's not primal in the sense that eating is primal and drinking is primal and various bodily activities are primal that would go on if we were abandoned on, on an island, cut free from humans. But in order to live a fully human existence, we need other humans to talk with and ha have friendships with and uh, come up with rules of justice for and uh, come up with projects with. And um, human, the history of humanity teaches that there are ways of doing that without the kinds of money that we see um, uh, operative in, in capitalism and in, in large states from, I mean, the Bank of England uh, was created in 1694. So if you want from the 18th century forward, um, uh, um, it's a part of that kind of, of, of existence. But I wouldn't say that that's not uh, primary. I think it is, I think Aristotle's right that it is primary to the human existence to be political animals. It's primary to be animals too, but it's primary, like it's just the kind of being that we are, that we get together in society. And it's one way of, of exercising our social existence. I see. I see. I think I probably, I think I probably expressed the thought. I, I suppose I meant that we're political first and uh, one must first be a political being before one is a being that uses money. Now that's right, and I think that's a that's a fine way of drawing the distinction between what the Cardalist is advocating and what um, uh, the the catalectic theorist, the commodity theorist, is advocating. And again, the the best place to go get clear on this is to go back and reread the Second Treatise of Government on Locke and just watch how he unfolds the steps and say, if that's right, then the catalectic theory is right. If he has gotten something badly wrong about where money is coming into this picture, or for that matter, where property rights are coming into this picture then maybe uh, the Aristotelian view that we're, um, that the polis is prior uh, has got something going for it. Well, I think we better leave it there, Graham, but thanks very much. That was really interesting. Great. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I've been really happy to be at, at ICE. And um, uh, thanks for the opportunity to come on the podcast and chat a little bit about things I'm thinking about. Thanks for listening. I'm grateful to everyone at ICE at Dartmouth and to Graham Hubs for making this episode possible. We listened to The Winter of Science by Alexa Music. Stay tuned for more episodes or check ice.dartmouth.edu. Thank you.